time because along with listening to all the things that were popular in the 60s and whatnot, was also listening to these interesting and strange things on this strange machine, which you had to take this reel out of the box, fix it on the machine, and then thread it through this very particular and precise you know, pathway onto the other reel. And so I learned how to thread tape pretty early, you know, along with... Um, my father was uh, doing professional photography at the time as well, so it was kind of this weird audiovisual experience, but certainly there was something about the sound which kind of stuck with me. And uh, it came with a couple of microphones, and when I got my first, uh, they, they saw an early interest in tape recording, and I was given a little Craig tape recorder. I don't know anyone's familiar with Craig tape recorders. They were very funny little recorders that were around for a while that had a little T-shift on them, you know, and it was like a little like a little stick shift, and you'd pull it down, it would play, and push it up in the middle and stop and rewind and fast forward and, you know, have these little tiny five-inch reels, and so my fate was kind of sealed there and began hanging microphones outside of windows and listening through the headphones and just finding out all kinds of fun and interesting and strange things about how you could kind of perceive sound. And it wasn't until later on in college that I began to really um, start to really explore it when I was taking marine biology courses at SF State University because I was going to be Jacques Cousteau's underwater cameraman. And uh, I was determined to do that. And uh, then somebody told me about radio dramas. And I went down to the broadcasting department, and my fate was kind of sealed then. Um, and so I've been hanging around tape things for quite some time. So um, there's a lot of ways to go with, uh, and a lot of options, uh, financial. Uh, you know, like I said, there's some very cheap options with recording, some very expensive ones. Uh, and you can get very satisfactory results without spending a huge amount of money. Though if you spend a huge amount of money, you can get some pretty crappy results if you don't know what you're doing with the equipment. So um, one suggestion I was giving yesterday is that whatever you have, how many people have mini-disc recorders here? Mm-hmm. Very healthy showing. How many people have DAP recorders? Okay. How many people have both? Okay, good, good, good. Any cassette uh, holdouts out there? Okay, good, good. That's, that's good, because that's okay. I still have my TCD 5M. Um, and, and, and again, if any of these, if I, I'm usually pretty good about not dropping in a lot of alphabet soup and things like this. So if anything comes up that you hear uh, that isn't immediately clear, please stop me and ask me to define something. I'll try to define them as I, as I go. I'll try to do simultaneous translating as I go. Um, <clears throat> but if any of that stuff comes up, uh, please stop me and ask. Uh, also, there's no stupid questions in this room, even though it's on tape. <laughs> Don't worry about that. I want to identify you uh, in particular. I'll just say, you know, you generic person in the back or something like this. Uh, so ask. this is a place where you get to ask those questions. There's some very crucial questions that have come up over the years in my training, like, what is stereo and what is mono? What's the difference between the two? Though it seems kind of like, you know, oh, what a surprise. You know, think about it for a moment and think how you might explain it. And that's not always the easiest explanation, you know. Um, but we can solve some of that as well. What I'm about to play for you is uh, something that I did a few years ago where um, I had gone out. I have a fascination with bells and I always have. <clears throat> Maybe it was from being, uh, going to a, um, 
an Episcopalian uh, private school that was next to a large cathedral in San Francisco, Grace Cathedral. So a copy of Notre Dame, they got the big bell towers and the whole bit. So maybe being around that got me fascinated by uh, with bells. But uh, this piece was my attempt to ape a little bit this uh, German piece called uh, The Bells of Europe, uh, which is <clears throat> an amazing radio portrayal of of the bells of Europe. It tells the story of the history of the bells in 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 in, um, in modern Europe, and it's um, tells the story of you know the bells and guns and the relationship between them, how all the bells were melted down for weaponry, and so the bell had this this curious cousin of the gun, and you know they were both kind of you know the alternating between the firing of the gun and the tolling of the bell and the similarities between the two. It's a brilliant piece, a brilliant piece. Uh, its original name was Glocken in Europe, and it's uh, Peter Leonard Braun, and uh, it's, a, it's a great piece if you ever get a chance to to hear it. And it's it's radio to that fine fine art of I think they call it Hirschspiel. This really, you know, the the top echelons of radio. There's a there's a producer in the back of the room who produces some wonderful stuff for Australian broadcasting, and um, so th- there's there's a very high level to to kind of shoot for, but then there's a lot of room in between. And how do we sort of start to go and do those basic recordings? Well, I'll play this, and then we can talk about what it sounds like and um, what went into putting it together. And I just, I just call it bells. It was my first, it was my first um, entry, or first episode, or an excerpt from my first episode of a, of a program that I was producing up until just a few weeks ago called Hot Soup on KQED, and. Um, I wanted to start with something that was very kind of soundy and signature, so I did my bell thing. It's finals week here at UC Berkeley campus. Students scramble to and from classes, while high above the campus, a lonely-sounding bell rings out the noon hour. But it's soon joined by the other bells in the carillon of the Campanile, James Sather Tower. is an assistant professor in the music department. He's also the official carolinist or bell ringer for UC Berkeley. For me, it was quite evident to study um, carillon. My father is also a carillonist. And he used to be a teacher at the Royal Carillon School in Mechelen in Belgium. So um, at the age of seven, I went along with him to all those towers where he played, where he performed and it started as an adventure for me, of course, being a little kid and, and seeing all those towers and places where nobody was allowed. And so I um, practically grew up with the instrument. I um, saw my father playing. I heard the music all the time. And suddenly um, I wanted to do the same thing. We have here in the tower three practice keyboards. Uh, they are basically the same as the one upstairs, but instead of belts, um, we have a xylophone. 
so if you want to study, you can, and you won't disturb anybody. Is that one in the other room? That's the one. If, if you want me to, you can uh, yeah. play something so you can hear the actual sound. Okay. You can see very obviously that the white and, and black keys of the piano, but it also has a paddle um, for the bigger belts. The, the clappers on the inside of bigger bells are uh, too heavy to play with your hands. That's why we need the feet. Um, but the technique is so much different than any other, any other instrument that, um, you know, it's, it's really uh, a specialized form of music. A parent reads to a child. It's a simple act, one that most of us take for granted. So, slipped into the next one. Uh, so that was just a simple portrayal of things that are around and things that people might sort of hear in your general environment. Maybe you've heard the bells ringing in some little church, but here's a chance to sort of, you know, take a look inside it. And um, so I took that opportunity to do so. Um, any questions about it? It was definitely in stereo. Did everyone hear that that was, in, that was a stereo image happening? Mm -hmm. Uh, that's that question. <laughs> uh, it's the way it's recorded. Um, stereo <clears throat> essentially is two, you know, we see in stereo. So we're seeing two different things with, you know, one image with one eye and another image with the other. And the two overlap, and that's what gives us stereo vision. That's why we can sort of get a concept of what's behind. If you don't have stereo vision, everything flattens. If you just have one eye available to you for whatever reason, then you have a problem with depth perception. Uh, because you're not getting two pieces of information in order to fill out that picture. Uh, the same with um, stereo in hearing. So stereo, you're getting two different things happening. Uh, and that's the sort of basic definition of stereo. Two, you've got the left and right channel, essentially, and two different things on the channel, but there's a shared image between the two of them. That's, and then binaural is two ears. Basically means two ears. So you're making a recording as if in the way that you're hearing it. So the microphones would have to be placed near the ears or placed in such a configuration as to have some kind of baffle in between the two microphones, like your head or some head-like object. And it uses the basically the pressure zone around your head and that sort of phase differential between, you know, a sound that comes down here is going to, you know, strike this ear, you know, half a millisecond before it strikes this one. And so that would define a binaural recording. So it's recorded as if you would hear it. Um, as I was saying yesterday, Tom Lopez is floating around the conference here, has one of these uh, art heads, this Kunstkampf. Uh, it's called, it's a, um, I think it's by Sennheiser. No, it's by Neumann. And it is actual head, which you may have seen at some concerts, sort of mounted on a pole. And it has molded ears. It has like ears that are taken from real people or some real person, and in in some imitation of the inner ear and an eardrum, or the microphone would be where the eardrum is. So it actually records ex exactly as you would hear it. So you can perceive sound from the left, from the right, as well as up and down and behind you as well, because we can tell all of these things because 
our head is this amazing, you know, we evolved, as I was saying yesterday, we evolved this stereo microphone <laughs> up here, the stereo microphone and stereo camera up here because to sense danger wherever we kind of were. So we could kind of turn it around and listen, and we needed to turn it because we couldn't turn our ears around like that. So uh, binaural two, two ears That's <laughs> the short answer. <laughs> yeah. Do you always record it in stereo? No, no. Um, if I'm doing a one-on-one -on -one interview with somebody, I just record that in mono. Sometimes I'll use a stereo microphone and sum it to mono, or just record on the mini disc since you have that option, record in mono or stereo. Um, if it's just a one-on-one -on -one interview, I'll just record in mono. Uh, if it's just a voice and the ambience isn't particularly important to the situation, then I'll just record it in mono. But if I really want to get a sense like this one of a nice stereo or large image, especially since the bells use such a large resonating space of a neighborhood or a zip code or a city or a village um, as its resonating chamber, then that's important, I think, for that to get stereo because that's the way you would hear it. I've been to a little village out in um, some of the villages out in all over the t country in Europe. You know, you'll be in a valley, and these bells will resonate for miles and miles and miles. And so to record that in mono would work fine, would work just fine. But to I think to really fully appreciate that you've got this incredible sound all around you, I think it, that would deserve be deserving of a stereo recording, I would think. I think any dramatic change is going to affect the ears. Anything where a sound sort of, I think the ear deals more with silences, like in more immediate silences. You can play with stereo. And I, I remember this lesson that my uh, one of my early broadcasting teachers was going to showing me about a, it was a record by George Duke, which was in stereo and started in a very tight stereo, the song. Uh, from his album, I think it's called Carnival Rio. It's his Brazilian album, which came out in the in the 70s. And um, there's a point at which the song kind of opens up. The voices sort of start in this very narrow stereo configuration, then they open way up. And I don't think it's disturbed by it, but I think you have to be kind of careful mixing the two. If you do, you can do it for effect, and it can be quite startling and quite, you know, quite a, re a revelation if you use it carefully but I would be careful about jumping back and forth. What some people do is they'll record a stereo environment like this one. You know, I interviewed uh, Geert Dollander in mono, with a mono mic, and then I recorded the bells and his playing of the, uh, of the practice instrument in stereo, just because it's such a, you know, it's such a lovely sound that was happening there in that little chamber and, uh, and outside. So I put him as a, as a mono element in the middle of a stereo mix. And it kind of works because the stereo kind of provides a whole background. Yeah. But I think switching back and forth could be tricky. Could be tricky. Yeah. Try it on somebody, and if they kind of, you know, you can sort of watch physical, you know, cues if you have a good set of test ears, and someone you can sort of say, hey, you know, listen to this, and watch them for body cues. And sometimes people will fidget or wince or notice or turn around. At least I do sometimes when things switch around. And a, a good exercise too is to when you go next time you go to the movies. Uh, are many of you in this in the seeing sound uh, section? Uh, yeah, it, 
it, it really serves well to start really listening very carefully to movies. Get there a little early so you can sit in the sweet spot, which in this room is the empty <laughs> space right in the middle here. But it really serves well to be in that movie theater about one-third of the way back from the screen because that's the place where all the sounds kind of ideally converge. And surround sound systems have that as well. When you see these diagrams of the surround sound theater, home theater systems, there's sort of a, an ideal spot that you can sit and catch all of that, you know, all of the Dolby 5.1 stuff so it really hits you well. So you can hear, you know, Jupiter or whatever broadcast, you know, swishing past, you know, your left, you know, rear ear to the center or, or whichever way Randy was, uh, was mixing that. So, so um, it wasn't, no, I'm sorry, go ahead. Let's see, this one, I'm trying to remember which microphones I use. I, I thought I was using a short shotgun microphone, but I think I may have been using an even smaller stereo microphone that came with an Olympus Pearl Quarter, an Olympus micro cassette player. And it's just a little tiny one-point you know, stereo microphone. It has two little tiny uh, capsules in it. It's not about yay big. And had a little foot that folded down. I just had to hold it in some foam so I didn't get any handling noise. And it was just sort of holding it out. It has a little sort of foot that comes out, which swings all the way back. And so I was just kind of pointing it up uh, towards the bells, but certainly was enough to catch sort of some of the campus ambience as well of students walking by the bottom of the tower because it's right on their way through the different classes. And then for the interview with the um, with the Carolinist, it was just um, using a I believe I was using a, a Shure VP64 microphone uh, with that one. It was an omnidirectional dynamic microphone, which is very bright. This is very bright to the voice. Uh, even if you get a beautiful stereo recording, I'm mm -hmm. Well, many do, and, and you'd be surprised what, what actually holds up through all of that stuff. Uh, when I sent, had to send things to the BBC, um, that's, you know, that's mono, that's broadcast in mono, so it wouldn't do you any good to do a stereo recording there. You could do something in stereo, and, but it, it would just be crunched down to mono uh, immediately. Um, some things make it through. Uh, KQED, I know, um, in San Francisco where I worked, had broadcast in stereo all the time. The station where I worked before that, KALW, would broadcast in both mono and stereo because the mono signal was clearer than the stereo signal. So they would switch back and forth. So for a program that had a lot of stereo content in it, you know, the little light would blink on, and and uh, for stuff that was in mono, we'd just switch it off. And uh, we'd often get people that would, you know, call you. They were watching their stereos very carefully for the little red light to come on, and they would let you know if that program was not being broadcast in stereo because they were counting on it, be it a music program. The music programs will see in the evening and news and information programs during the day. So it made more sense to have the clearer signal, the clearer mono signal in the morning, and we could go to at night having the stereo signal there. So. So it wasn't, it, how many were not, it wasn't really clear that that was a stereo recording. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. yeah. Well, what I'm going to, what I'll do is I'll, I'll play the beginning of that again, and I'll start it in mono, and then you can hear it back again in stereo. I'll, I'll open it up to stereo, because the image will sort of basically go from being in the center 
in order in, in having things that are some things are on the left and some things are on the right. And it may take sort of leaning towards the center a little, um, but I'll try it again here. So I'm going to start this in mono. Tricky little touch pads. Here. It's finals week here at UC Berkeley campus. Students scramble to and from classes, while high above the campus, a lonely-sounding bell rings out the noon hour. But it's soon joined by the other bells in the carillon of the Campanile, James Safer Tower. It starts off very kind of small like this, and they, they start the movie, and then the curtains roll back, and the picture itself actually expands out to fill the entire space of the, of the, of the space of the, 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 the theater ratio that it was shot for, and it's quite a dramatic effect. It's the same kind of thing with mono, in mono versus stereo. You're getting a little bit wider view of things. There's an example that got played on All Things Considered a few years back in which there were two discrete mono recordings, uh, or one that this person had found of a Duke Ellington recording. It was made on, you know, old, you know, original cut of a record, and they had this great rare record, and then somebody found the same record. And it sounded the same, except the balance of the instruments sounded a little bit different. And, you know, the horns were a little louder on this one record, and on this other one, you know, the, the bass was a little bit louder. And so what they figured out was the same recording session, and when they put the two of them together, they had a stereo recording. And it was this, this, this early, unintentional stereo recording from somebody just making an extra backup copy from this thing. So it was something that was kind of interesting and wonderful made there. They didn't know that they were making it because nobody had the, the thought to put these things together. And I guess they may not have even had the technology to put it together at the time. So it was kind of a fascinating thing. To sort of, To me, it was a really clear illustration of what mono versus stereo was. It was two recordings, but essentially that's what you're doing with a stereo recorder. You're making two recordings. You have two microphone elements. They may appear in the same, in the same housing, like this is a stereo mic, but it has two microphone elements in it. So those, each of those two are going to, well, it's a little more complicated, but basically they, 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 one is going to one channel, <clears throat> and another, the other recording is going to the other channel, one to the left, one to the right, and it's a shared area between the two of them. Okay. So you can have two-channel mono, the same thing on both channels, and you can have stereo different things on each channel, or you can have discrete channels where there's just completely different things on each channel, but that's getting a little, a little out there. If the question comes up on how do you actually uh, get and portray things, how do you go out and and get something that sounds kind of real? Like say, I don't know, I'll throw a question out. If you're going to record a mechanics shop, what would, what would be some sounds that you might capture? Yeah, 
It's one of those little, you know, sorry, something I ate. Um, <clears throat> little hydraulic things. And this is the way you kind of have to think. And <clears throat> I think that the, the value of what was happening in the singing sound lesson, especially that little opening segment from the, uh, from the, uh, from Touch of Evil. And if you've ever seen the, um, the battle, you know, when they're first landing on the beach in Apocalypse Now, if you ever get a chance to sort of really get back and see that scene, uh, that's, that was Randy Tom's first film job, <laughs> was working on a, a little film like Apocalypse Now. And uh, they spent, I think, a year and a half mixing that film, mixing just the audio for it. And there's, if you watch that battle scene, it's, it's pretty amazing. There's a sound for everything that's on the film. No, no doubt, you know, Walter Murch was involved with that, and clearly from that, you can sort of see that same setup from that opening segment of Touch of Evil, but everything on the screen has a sound. And if you look at that, that it's, it's the bit where they first land on the beach and you first encounter the Robert Duvall's character, um, and everything on the screen has a sound. Now, that's sort of an extreme version of what you have to do. Sometimes you just have to illustrate something and illustrate it in a way that's going to kind of convey a sense of place and a sense of what that, you know, something that evokes whatever space that you're in. And it may not be the obvious thing, you know. Uh, there's been, uh, if you're doing a protest march, it's kind of hard to get around that, you know, hey, hey, the, oh, the so-and-so has got to go, hey, hey, you know, fill in the blank has got to go. You know, this, you know it's really good to step away from those kind of cliché sounds, even though some of them are sort of like the, like the lug nut, you know, hydraulic wrench are kind of immediately identifiable as something. But if there's a way to take a picture of something, take an audio picture of something, that is something a little bit different. And the thing that I found is usually the close-up view on things sometimes is what really kind of makes a difference in portraying a sound and in portraying a sense of place. Oftentimes if you're in, if you ever get to travel to another country or uh, in somebody's living space, Often the simple sound of a radio in a room is something that can be very evocative of a sense of place. You know that you're indoors just because your ears are trained to know that there's sound bouncing off of walls, that it's probably not a human voice given the frequency range of it, just like you can tell a, a telephone call. You can tell when something's been recorded on the telephone because you know that's a very, very distinctly defined audio range that you're operating with. The same with the radio. Uh, and the same with the radio inside of a room. It's bouncing off the walls, and you know what the sound of being inside sounds like. You know what the sound of being outside sounds like, because suddenly all those lovely bass frequencies that have been bouncing around the room are gone. So sometimes you can simulate being outside by if you take off some of the bass frequencies, if you want to, you know, emulate something a little bit. You can, you know, create a telephone voice by taking out certain, you know, frequencies out of something. You can, you know, sort of have something, you know, appear to be very, you know, almost like a telephone voice, something like this. You know, it's like, you know, I add the bass frequencies back into it just by cupping the, my voice like this. It's beginning to sound a little more human, but... If I take out everything but a lot of the high frequencies, I'm left with something that sounds like a telephone. And you add all the frequencies back in, and we're back to what we're sort of generally used to. Um, I'm a little bassy today. <laughs> uh, so, um, so we have to start thinking about sort of what, what is going to portray these places. Um, I had a chance to go into this jailhouse uh, program, which uh, I think I have an intro actually on here, so it's this kind of self-explanatory about a reading program in the San Francisco jail. So how do you 
you know, how do you do the JL piece, given the limitations that, you know, you can't sort of go everywhere, do those, you know, you can't go into cells. I'm a man in a woman's prison cell. You know, so I'm going to kind of do the best that I can in this situation. Uh, and sort of establish immediately with some sounds that are a little cliche, but it sort of sets the pace. A parent reads to a child. It's a simple act, one that most of us take for granted. That is, unless things get in the way, things like being in jail. In San Francisco, a volunteer program is helping men and women in prison read to their children, some for the first time. The volunteers tape the moms and dads reading stories for their kids. Michael Johnson listened in one evening and brings us the sounds of mothers reading stories from the San Francisco County Jail. It's another night in the E-Pod of the San Francisco County Jail, women's section. Most of the women here are in for narcotics possession or sales. Tonight, some are gathered around a box of books to record stories for their children, their grandchildren, nieces and nephews. They say the readings take them out of the confines of the jail, at least in their minds. Well, I imagine my, me and my child just sitting there talking and reading and, you know, like old popcorn or something. But it really brings me back to the earth, you know, and it just feels a lot of pain sometimes. But it's not nothing bad. It's just like, you know, just the kids go off to school and you're at home. It's just like that, you know. So, yeah, I just like it because they give you, they take the time out to come here to give us, a, you know, enough encouragement to let us know that somebody still loves us regardless. About four years ago, the program was proposed by Davidson Bidwell Waite as part of Grace Cathedral's jail ministry program. San Francisco Sheriff Mike Hennessy approved it, and since then it's operated through a small grant to pay for books scoured from used bookstores and postage to mail books out to the children. Under the watchful eye of the sheriff's deputies, the women record the stories into a small desktop recorder in a quiet room next to the main observation area. Hey, you guys. This is Sonia, and I'm going to read a book and send it to you guys just to show you just how much I miss you. The title of the book is Sun and Moon. It was a bright autumn morning, and the sun was climbing high into the sky. But his face was Hi, Deanna. This is your mom. You're only six weeks old. You have an older brother that's about three years old, and I'm hoping that one day both of you two can get together and you can read him, you can let him hear this story, too. How to get the idea. Mm hmm hmm I walked in rolling, uh, which is the thing where you <laughs> sort of drum that in. Is uh, I walked in with all my equipment uh, ready and rolling, so I have everything from me checking in with my driver's license, you know, being searched the whole bit, you know, having any odd objects, wallets, all of that, you know, stashed. What's that? Yeah, yeah. Is that legal? 
Well, going into a prison, they just want to make sure that I'm not, you know, I'm not smuggling, trying to smuggle any drugs. No, I don't think it's a problem. I don't, this, this question has come up before. Um, is that is that a legal thing? I think that it's it's kind of you know you're wearing your stuff and it's kind of rolling. It's something that it's a little trick that picked up from the CBC a few years back when they used to listen to a program they had called Sunday Morning, and they were always rolling, always rolling as they as they walked up to a guest. So they're always kind of going, hey, how you doing? You know, hey, I'm so-and-so from, you know, I'm Canadian Broadcasting, and I'm uh, here to do the... And so they would begin often just because that's, it's part of Canadian culture to be, you know, kind of, you know, boy, how do you, you know, and that would be just part of what they would do. And so they would walk up rolling. So it, it's it's a possibility. It just gives you more possibilities with your piece. Yeah. Did they know what's wrong? I think it was pretty apparent. It was pretty apparent because I was asking the questions like this and handing, you know, and holding it up. So it was, it was pretty apparent that I was that I was recording, and nobody said, you know, nobody had a problem with it, and it was it was in a, a pretty, you know, pretty clear cut sort of rules kind of oriented place. So. And the, no, I was just holding it, just holding it right in front of me, like so, because the door is pretty big. <laughs> and so I think I actually had to catch the door a second time, because the first time I think it pinned, uh, it pinned my, my needles there. Uh, in the back. When you conduct an interview with, say, um, with a mechanic or, mm -hmm. or in some other loud space, mm -hmm. you do, um, do you do the interview where there are drills going off in the background, or do you try to get them away from that sound? I get them away and put it in later. If you can possibly separate the sounds, this gives you more control later. Um, like the the bell ringer, uh, he was not playing those those the carillon at the same time that he was talking. He was explaining what it was all about, and then he performed it all by it all by itself. And so later, I was able to take that, and you know, of course, he finishes talking, and then he, you know, <laughs> people aren't quite that eloquent in the real world. <laughs> you know? No, no, that was there was a stereo microphone for the xylophone, and a mono mic for uh, for his interview. Um, you know, uh, it, the mono sort of sits better in the stereo. It's just you know the stereo is kind of filling up the whole background, like it's almost like having a backdrop, <laughs> in a way. And you drop an actor into the middle of it, and uh, you just layer the two sounds. I mean, if the microphones are radically different. Uh, there might be a problem there, but if you're working with a with a pretty rich stereo environment, it will cover for a lot of things. Like I don't know if you heard, there's a piece, there's a part in the middle where an elevator suddenly starts going, since we're in this tower, and the elevator mechanism suddenly you know starts up. You don't notice it so much because it's a little bit masked by what's going on in the stereo image, because there's so much stuff going on in the stereo image, it has a tendency to mask what's going on. The sounds that are that are not heard as much are masked by the sounds that are louder. Like right now, you're listening to my voice and hearing all of these things, and we're listening to these tapes, but at the same time, it's masking lots of things that are going on in this room. The sounds of people talking outside in the hallway. There's a quiet hum of the air conditioning. But when you're listening to something that's louder, your ears listen to all of that, and they just shut out the other stuff. Or just, you know, your ear just filters it out.
Mm-hmm. That you're able to, you know, your brain is able to focus on these things. The microphone is not. <laughs> the microphone is much more clinical about the way it records sound. So that's why you always have to monitor your recordings. It's really important. Really important. Well, again, it all depends upon the per- excuse me. It all depends upon the perspective that you're trying to portray. Uh, generally, it's kind of it would be the visual equivalent of a camera panning. So, if you have, especially binaural, you have to be very careful with that, because it is, you know, if you turn your head this way, you're going to hear something very different about the room than if you turn your head the other way. Um, and so you have to be kind of very conscious of what you're doing with the stereo image because it can be a little disorienting if people are listening that close, which most people aren't. So generally, stereo mics are stationary. They're, they're less stationary in certain things. There's a fellow here, Aaron Zim, who if you try to find him before he goes, he's, he's at quietamerican.org, and he has some wonderful uh, little sound samples up there. Right now he's working on a compilation called Drifting, because most people are used to having these stereo recordings that are static, you know, as you're saying. But he specifically wanted a collection of stereo recordings where you're actually walking through a space, which is very different. This is very different. In fact, in, in, a, in a couple of moments, I'll play a moving, like not moving, but <laughs> certainly a stereo piece that moves through a space. Yeah, okay. Um, I could, but I don't. <laughs> uh, the particular mic that I had with that one uh, wasn't uh, wasn't uh, particularly suited to summing to mono. It was a funny little, you know, 90-degree, one-point stereo little microphone, which I wouldn't have, would have been fine for recording those great environments, but I think for an interview it wouldn't have been as good. It wouldn't have been as kind or as bright to the voice itself. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, oftentimes, if you have a news piece, um, if the ambience is really important to the news piece, uh, then perhaps then you would want to use uh, stereo. But most of the times in, in a lot of news pieces, you'll just hear, uh, it'll just be mono, because there's no reason, when you're talking to Gray Davis, um, our former governor, or whoever it is, whoever the political official is, um, there's not really a great need to have them in stereo. Yeah, they're pretty. That's right, <laughs> California. Mm-hmm. Low profile, yes. Uh-huh. What country is it? Yeah, is it? Oh, okay, all right. Strange place. <laughs> 
I have some of those microphones up here. Again, it's you know it, it will all depend upon the situation that you're recording. There's lots of options for low-profile recording. Uh, Soundprofessionals.com uh, has these these great little, tiny little binaural microphones that actually just fit right in the curve of your ear. And uh, there's a little tiny microphone capsule, and the cord sort of goes over the back of your ear and behind. And if unless you're looking really close, it kind of looks like a hearing aid. Um, and uh, an in-ear hearing aid. And they're very low profile. The sound is actually quite good. They're, they're $69, and the sound is actually quite good on them. Um, another sort of uh, secret mic uh, weapon here is this one's by a Radio Shack. It's the Radio Shack uh, stereo clip-on microphone. These have been, I, I talk about these all the time, but uh, they have been discontinued by Radio Shack. So go to your local store and ask if they have them. If they say they don't, ask them to look in the back because there's usually one or two floating around whatever store it is. Uh, it comes with this power supply, um, which supplies the power to the microphone. Notice it comes out to two mini mono cords. You don't need this at all. You can throw this part away because the mini disc has plug-in power and actually provides a little bit of voltage up the uh, up the chain of the uh, up the microphone cable there. So um, you can just use these microphones all by themselves. They're very small. Uh, I think Walter Merch I think uh, actually has some of these. <laughs> no, no, Michael Stearns. Michael Stearns, the musician, has some of these. He's been doing music around for a while. He bought some of these. He dipped them in epoxy and uses them for underwater recording. So, you know, it's twenty nine ninety five. <laughs> if you can find them, they're a great deal. And I've used these for broadcast pieces before, and the sound is actually fairly amazing on them. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Mm, uh, if you've got a subject that will sit still, you know, and maybe if you're on a one-on-one -on -one situation where you need to interview somebody for a while, perhaps, um, but handheld just gives you more control. The handheld microphone gives you more control, or a microphone on a stand gives you a little bit as well, but then you know the person has the danger of deviating off the microphone a little bit or maybe turning their head. Or You see it on the panel sometimes. You know, Well, that's an interesting question that you address like that. Well, that's, you know, if you had a microphone where you can actually follow them like that when they actually turn their heads this way and that way, you can kind of follow along with them or wherever the sound goes. Because right now my... You know, the sound is still coming out of my mouth, but it's coming out in this direction. So if the microphone points still where the sound is going, then you can still catch it. And we all know about the uh, don't don't have your miking like this kind of thing. Does anybody know why? Pee popping. Peter Piper picked a pick a pickle. You know, pow. Little plosives there. So when you're miking, you want to always have things off at a slight angle like so. It just helps a lot in order for getting cleaner recordings. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. 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 Uh, I've used them both. 
uh, if your host is going to, if your, um, your, your guest is going to be sitting fairly still, um, then a shotgun can be okay. Uh, some people work with a shotgun. This is a shotgun microphone. Uh, does everybody know the definition of shotgun? It is a, uh, hypercardioid microphone. There, there are omnidirectional microphones which hear in all directions. Like this one here. This is the Assure VP64. A very good deal for about $75 or so. It is an omnidirectional microphone. There's a little picture of a little circle there, which means it hears in a perfect sphere all around and hears equally well from all sides of it there. If this were a cardioid or directional microphone like this one, if you suddenly get to the side a little bit, the sound drops off rather dramatically. That's because this microphone is hearing, and there's a little picture of a little tiny upside-down heart on this one. Uh, this one hears in a pattern like that. So there's a drop-off at the sides, but here's what's in front of it best. So that's cardioid. Shotgun is hypercardioid, which means that that heart pattern is extended out to an extreme directly in front of it. So at press conferences, when somebody, you know, like the presidential press conferences, you hear those odd sounds. or somebody sitting there in the press room going, you know, you know, pointing the microphone literally at people like this. So if I had a chance to do all of that, you would actually pick up people in the room. If there's a question from the back or even from the door, I could point this microphone over there, and anything that comes in from the side is going to be rejected. So the tricky part about shotgun mics and directional mics is that if you get a little bit off axis, you're way off mic. That And you can have a whole interview. If you're, if you're paying attention and doing all of these things, not going to be a problem. But these mics can be very tricky. And if you're talking to somebody and have the mic there, and if it gets even just a little bit off like that, and sometimes that can happen. I've seen people that use shotguns, and then they'll have the mic pointing down below like so and you're not getting the full voice there, you're getting more sounds from my chest, more lower frequencies there. Over here, it's off mic. Over here, it's off mic. Even pointing up at my nose, it's, a little, it's getting a little bit better, but it's still off mic. A directional mic is going to hear what's directly in front of it best. So a shotgun mic is really good at hearing what's directly in front of it, so you have to use it really carefully. So I've used them in interviews, short answers, I've used them in interviews before, and they work fine. I've even used a shotgun pair in which I was on one and the other person was on another one, and we were sitting across a table. Just for that particular situation, that seemed to work. And, but I had to constantly remind the person to sort of stay on access with the microphone. So that's not really something you want your interviewee to be worried about, the sort of staying. So if you're able to sit there and slightly, you know, make adjustment, course adjustments, I think that's a better... Um, you could use a directional as back and forth, um, but you just have to make sure that the person knows that that microphone has to be all the way to them before they start answering. And I'd recommend micing your questions as well. It's always, again, it just gives you more options later. And if you mic all of your questions, just have them all there. You never know when something that you ask is going to be quite crucial and going to work with whatever piece you're using. And it'll, you know, it's not like you have to be you know, the, the studio reporter and then now we go to our actuality and sort of have that void. I mean, you're, you, know, you went to this place. You were there. You were affecting this situation. So it's going to be important, I think, to have your questions on the mic uh, just so that you have an option at the end. Is there any special techniques that they don't forget? 
Um, I think you can tell them once, you know, and you can ask them to begin things again, you know, if they start too soon. And Omni will be much more forgiving as you're <laughs> as they're making your way back to their mouth. But um, that will, uh, I think it's always better to do the back and forth, unless you have two microphones and you can track them separately somehow. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. The best mic is the one that you that you like, <laughs> the one that sounds the best. Like a lot of people have been surprised when I pulled out these Radio Shack mics after playing them this piece uh, that I did about it. Something on, on uh, interviewing people in a movie theater lobby about um, Asian and black themes in film, and was just kind of using this. They didn't really, you know, think it was unusual that I was holding these little things back and forth. But then, you know, it sounded fine on the broadcast, sounded great on the broadcast. And, and if you take these and separate them out, you can make some amazing stereo recordings. The frequency response of these is, 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 is amazing. But it may not suit your ear very well. This microphone, the, the Shure VP64 uh, that I mentioned before, is kind of a uh, Shure's answer to the, to the RE50, except it doesn't have a lot of mic handling. Uh, it, it doesn't protection. So this is why I put this this bicycle grip on it because that protects it somewhat. You know, the naked microphone is just like so, and it is subject to a lot of handling noise since there's no shock mounting between the mechanism there. So the vibrations get transferred directly to the diaphragm and back on down the chain. So I have the neoprene bike grip on it, and some people have shock mounts on them or something that isolates the microphone. You know, so, so it's literally hanging in space. Um, it's suspended by rubber bands so the vibrations don't get transferred from your hand to the microphone itself. Um, this microphone here is very bright. It's very uh, bright as far as the human voice goes. The Electro Voice RE50, which is the standard that a lot of places use, um, isn't as bright. But when you record in ambience, you can actually understand people better when you're, when you're recording with the RE50 than you can with the Shure VP64. I've done a side-by-side -side test with them in a restaurant environment. I could pick out what people were saying more easily in the background with the RE50 than I could with this one. So you, know, you have to listen to the mics. If you get a chance to test them out, you know, try one. If there's a local store you can go down to, bring your equipment to and, uh, you know, and, and try them out and see what you like. Uh, NPR for a long time was using a Bayer. I think it's the M58. Is that the, um, that the, the German mic? And it was a directional microphone. It was dynamic, which means it generates its own power, didn't need a uh, battery. And, and I got one, and I hated the sound. <laughs> I just didn't like it at all. And it just didn't suit the way I like to hear voices. You know, there's other microphone choices out there, but uh, that one in particular didn't suit me. So the RE50 and the Shure VP64, two omnidirectional dynamic microphones that a lot of people seem to like. It's different. It's different. It's a different microphone. It's kind of like comparing, you know, 
Volkswagens with uh, with Volvos. You know, I mean, it's something that you know one works for one set of people, <laughs> one works for another one. You know, trying to squeeze yourself into a Miata, or you know, would you like a you know a car with larger space inside? Whichever is one is going to work for you best. Um, this one's going to be a little bit more rugged because it's a dynamic microphone. The dynamic mics tend to be more rugged because they don't have these little thin diaphragms that condenser microphones do. So that's a good choice if you're traveling on the road um, and need something that's going to be a little more durable. Um, this one, wonderful for recording. It's a stereo microphone, and so you know you're going to. You know, it's much brighter. Uh, it's, it's much brighter, and the, the image is wider. It's, it's just a different microphone. So this one has its uses, and the other one has its uses. That's why I have both. I'm a little obsessive with microphone collecting. But, um, but you know, it all depends on what you're using it for. If you're recording a lot of music, you know, the, the, the 907 is a great mic. In fact, David Isay, I think, was using these for years, um, using these for many years and doing interviews with Lynn D. May Roberts, who runs the storiesfirst.org, uh, uses these uh, almost exclusively uh, for her mini-disc kits. And they're designed for mini-disc. They work quite well with mini-disc. These you can find for $70. They used to be $100, but you can find them for $70 these days. Brand new at etronics.com or on eBay. Uh, the model is uh, the ecm dash. MS stands for Midside 907. Absolutely, yes, yes, it does. It comes with a little flippy clip, but uh, it definitely needs something. It's meant to be. It's, it's primarily a music for music instrument recording, but you can use it for the voice since it's nice and bright for the voice as well. Generally, in the studio. Um, there was some stuff uh, for, for CBC had this habit of doing things outside. They always wanted the reporter to track the, uh, for, on Sunday morning for quite some time. It's an old uh, documentary program, that was long-form documentary program that used to be on Sundays. And they used to like to actually track, have the people track the stuff there where they were and to track the things outside. And sometimes they would, if the person was returning back from some place, they would you know, have them go out to a park that had palm trees in it, you know, to sort of replicate, you know, the sound that, that, that was in the old place. So, you know, they like to do things outside just because for them, I guess that was a more sense of reality and more of a sense of that, you know, that Canadian uh, informality of having people sort of be a little bit closer to their listeners. But generally, I track inside in the studio. It's just different. It's just different. Um, you know, they did it as, as a preference for their pieces. Um, generally, you want to do it inside because it, it gives you more control. If you want to, you can, you know, record in full voice inside in the studio. And if you want to start rolling things off of it, at least you're starting with all the frequencies there, all the bass frequencies and everything there in the first place. And then you can kind of take things out if you want to to make it sound more like it's outside. But, you know, I'm not sure... No, it all depends, again, it all depends upon the piece. If you are wanting to sort of be, you know, I'm standing here, you know, by the side of the, you know, and the crowd is going by, and, you know, people are going to kind of get the clues that you're outside because you've, you've done what you do in a club or in an outside place. You've amplified your voice. You've emphasized 
unconsciously you've emphasized the high frequencies in your voice in order to cut through more of what's going on there in order to get to somebody inside of it. You know, if you're in a club, you, you know, you shout at somebody, you kind of, hey, you know, I'm kind of, you, you move your voice up so it pierces through all of the base information that's going on. So that can be a clue that you're outside to somebody who's listening, who has, you know, media savvy ears, if you will. If it's applicable for them to be doing this, I mean, if it's particularly crucial to their works, who was describing, somebody was describing just the other day, a, they went to see this uh, Native American uh, flute maker, and when he was going out expecting this kind of mellow, pristine atmosphere, this guy was listening to heavy metal, and he was using a Dremel tool, and he was just like listening to, you know, this is like, you know, he had headphones on, he was drilling and all this stuff, and it was very... It was great, and he started recording there, and then, of course, he took it to someplace quieter later, just because that's too much to try to control. So if you can, you know, if you can get a range of possibilities, it just gives you more control if you have them in that quieter space. You know, if you want to have them walk you through something, you know, that's another story right there, because they will kind of, you know, and over here we've got the so-and-so. I've done a number of interviews where you're kind of walking along and where they're forced to do that kind of projection in order to, to make up for the noise that's there, and that can be useful, too. But again, it just gives you more control if you're in that other atmosphere. Mm. I, I, I'm thinking now that it was the Olympus uh, Pearl, uh, the, the smaller, cheap Olympus mic. Well, I have used stereo shotgun microphones before. I'll tell you a place where I used one. Um, it was a, this Native American series for the Smithsonian. And so we were using at a, um, it was a, at Taos Pueblo, this big celebration at Taos Pueblo in, in, in Taos, New Mexico. And they had a very large drum, and the drumming circle was around it, and they were kind of doing the, you know, doing the, uh, the round dance beats. And so it would have been hard to sort of be next to the drum, right next to the drum, just because the sheer air pressure coming off of that thing was, you know, moving a lot of air. So we had a stereo shotgun mic on a fish pole, you know, up above this thing, pointed down at, pointed down at the drum. And so there we were able to capture a lot of the things that were going on around the sides for that image, and then we're also able to capture what was in the center as well without being so close to it. As it you know, is to have it over on the microphones. I've also used it on a stage. Um, as a, um, a Pulse of the Planet piece, which was about the Obon Festival um, in Palo Alto, um, in a in a church out in California, in a, in a Buddhist temple. And so this is a day of remembrance of ancestors. So I use this a lot to capture a lot of the sounds that were going on at the festival there, like the sound of this, this shakuhachi. Uh, ensemble that was playing on stage was well, since I couldn't really get so close to them without being sort of in front of the whole thing even though I've done that before kneeling there you know you're right in front of the whole crowd and uh, you know you can do that too and you actually get get better recordings if you're kind of getting into the mix there but that's a case where it was good to use the stereo shotgun because I was able to to have a little bit of distance from the situation 
but I was also able to really capture a nice stereo image of these five Shakuhachi players, which are up on the stage a little bit away from me, because I couldn't be up on the stage with them or have a microphone right there on the stage. So that's another case where a stereo shotgun microphone would be useful. Yeah. And I also used, actually, in that same piece, these head-worn microphones for some general crowd ambience, and we were able to mix the two, and it was kind of outside to inside thing. This are by a company called Sonic Studios. And Randy, do you have some of these? Uh, I've used them. Yeah, yeah, they're they're a lot of fun. Uh, they record really well. They're 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 what you see here. This kind of looks like a goofy pair of headphones, and when you look at them, they they look a little bit strange. But inside here are some very small microphones. They're you know smaller than a penny, uh, which this fellow up in uh, Oregon makes. And he will, for an ex little extra fee, put them on this little headphone, you know, um, uh, headband here, and have them sort of suspended on a little hook inside of a little wire cage, which you can see here, and putting uh, wind protection material around it. So you've got two little miniature zeppelins here, and you wear them on your head, and uh, and the sound is actually pretty good on them. This gets back to that changing stereo image and that moving stereo image question that you had. Um, I've used these a lot, sort of standing in the middle of the street, uh, different places, you know, or different, you know, places just kind of getting the sounds that are going by. Um, I got this hookup. I, I originally had the other mic, the, the the one that's inside here, which you could actually just slip onto the temples of your glasses. You can just sort of, there's a little slip, almost, you know, a little loop that you can just slip them right over your glasses. And if you sort of have them back a little bit closer to your ears, you're getting more of a binaural type recording. Um, and to the front a little less so. Um, and and what I've done for these too is use I've had to not having earbuds that go in separately, I kind of with these, I've learned to trust my ears as a monitor. Occasionally, I'll get a little problem, but most of the time, what I'm listening to is what I get. And I've used these in all kinds of places, little disco in Corn Island. And in a minute, I'm going to play a, a, a piece that used these extensively. In fact, I got this hookup in particular for this piece uh, because it was a marathon runner who was going to be running a race, and there was going to be wind and all kinds of things happening. So this seemed the most practical way to mic him and mount the mini disc on his arm, so he didn't have it on a belt pack, which was going to be taking all of the all of the shock and throwing the mini disc tracking off. We had it on his arm, which was at least going to be swinging, and it wasn't going to be quite as shocking to the disc itself. Michael, you had a question? Yeah, which is one of the dumb No, no, there's no dumb questions. Um, I find myself a lot, especially lately, in very big rooms. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, uh, the answer the second, uh, the answer the second one first. I have had people turn off the air conditioning, and it. Um, 
Well, they managed to do it in this office, and we both sat there sweating for the 40 minutes. You know, it was it was in Nicaragua. It was Semana Santa, the hottest time of the year, but I just couldn't have this air conditioner going off. The other option is if you trust that it'll come out in the mix, which I think is a dangerous thing to depend on. Um, there are a lot of very smart noise reduction programs out there uh, right now. Uh, which can, you know, do a, a fairly interesting and effective job of taking out that particular, that will actually analyze that little piece of sound, and anywhere it hears it, it will just, you know, zap it out of the recording. But I wouldn't depend on that, which I think is kind of dangerous. Uh, if you're in a big equity space, you know, you have to, you just have to mic tight and also use, a, I'd, I'd say, a really, really, really directional microphone. Now, that would be a case where a shotgun might be kind of an interesting choice. And if you can get into a corner, you know, at least you're going to minimize the amount of sound that's being reflected back at that recording, you know. Any, any, any ideas there, Randy? Uh, not extensively, but maybe you can explain what MS is. And this 907 is a mid-side mic mid microphone, that's, that's the MS on it. No, no. If you've got a high output, what kind of what kind of shotgun is it? Like a set nice, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's something to step down the signal a little bit. You're just hitting it with something that's way too hot for a consumer level machine. If that's if you, is it a mini mini disc? Yeah, yeah. You're you're mixing <laughs> levels of professionality there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you 
And some machines have it built in. This HHB purple people recorder. I don't know if you've seen the HHB Porta Disc. It is a the large, you know, slightly about the size of the old Marantz cassette recorders, but it's a it's a mini disc recorder, professional mini disc recorder, and it has a pad built in. The Sony TCD 5M stereo cassette recorder, and many of the professional um, uh, machines will have it built in. Now I'm going to play. Uh, something that was recorded with these uh, microphones. So this address is kind of something that's moving through. This is a moving stereo image. Uh, and again, we got this because we wanted to uh, try to figure out how to mic a marathon runner. And this actually turned out, uh, I think, fairly well. This was a part of an, uh, I think the piece was about 18 minutes altogether of him basically tracing the night before a race the build-up to the race, you know, the dinner beforehand, you know, the morning, the start, the whole bit. Uh, I'll spare you the entire race and just play about five minutes of it. But so you can hear some interesting things that happen as this person is moving through the space. This was on Hot Soup, and uh, it was one of our engineers who, just, who was a marathon runner and decided to uh, go and, uh, and run the, um, the Big Sur Marathon, I believe it was. I found out that you're never alone during a marathon. You may run by yourself at times, but there's always other runners and spectators to cheer you on. Over 4,000 volunteers give their time, giving water, first aid, and anything else you can imagine. Plus, the must-needed massage at the end of the race, making this a community effort. Nine miles complete, I started the climb. Okay, boy. And man, it feels like a hurricane out here. What is it ever? It feels like a hurricane. If you've ever driven from Big Sur to Carmel, you know that at about nine miles into the trip, there's a two-mile climb to the top of Hurricane Point. The view at the top is breathtaking. And on this day, there is no fog. You can see for miles, but the wind was still there. I glanced back and I was racing downhill to the half marathon mark. Half marathon. A television helicopter overhead drowns out the beautiful piano music by piano player Jonathan Lee. Now going across the same as Sixty Bridge. You can hear the television helicopter overhead. Perhaps I could still qualify for the Boston Marathon. The Big Sur Marathon is often called the classical marathon. For all the music, this is what kept me going. Mile after mile went by. As I approached the 19-mile mark, I remember what my friend Jerry had told me. At 19 miles, you start to see people who had passed you injured on the side of the road. Carnage! This man was being attended to as his muscles cramped. The mind does weird things as my left leg started to cramp, maybe from the power of suggestion or just pure exhaustion. The Oliver. Then for some reason it went away. I just can't explain it. I just kept running. At 20 miles, the right leg cramped up too, but again, the pain went away. I kept running. I started to forget how far I had actually run. I needed water. <laughs> for the first time, I was actually looking forward to that familiar sound. <laughs> Water! Water! Back here! 
After that, I had a burst of energy. I knew I could do it. Then the wall hit. Every step seemed like a mile. I'm not... What they call the Raiders crawling. I'm dying. Somehow the music and the people help you forget. Come on, baby. You can do it. One step at a time, I told myself. This station is at three hours and 34 minutes. Keep it up. Water. Hey. It was tough to catch water and run at the same time. As I ran through Carmel, approaching 24 miles, the rooster echoed how my body felt. One last chance for water as a happy Boy Scout completed his mission of supplying water. The last few miles, I just kept going and going. The crowd, the drums, and more encouragement kept me running. My adrenaline kept flowing. I knew I could do it. Coming up like 25 miles. Oh, The sound of the bagpipes let me know that the end was near. I picked it up a bit knowing that the finish was in sight. I could hear the announcer reading off names of the runners. As I got closer, more encouragement. I looked for my family. They spotted me first. I couldn't see them, but I knew they were there. I was okay, exhausted, and glad it was finally over. Over 2,600 runners finished the race that day in the required time of 5 hours and 30 minutes. Many others finished after that. Some ran for people who had passed, others for charity, and some for the challenge and the confidence running a marathon gives you. Today, I feel like I can accomplish anything. I'm still running, training for another marathon. I still wonder about alcoholism. I have a drink from time to time, but I know I will be okay as long as I keep running. You're missing the, the intro of the pieces where he talks about his father being an alcoholic and something that he, you know, has tried to beat by just kind of keep keep on running because he realizes that that's something that can happen to him as well. But uh, again, we we got these this hookup particularly because he wouldn't have to worry about sort of trying to hold a microphone for one thing. He could just put it on his head, and if we put a sweat band around it, at least some, you know the mics may not have gotten drenched in sweat. And uh, you know, any impressions of the piece? Or maybe you had a question for cable noise. Mm, well, I mean, these mics are pretty. You know, when they're hanging in their little zeppelin, they're pretty isolated, and when you No, no. I mean, I can uh, show you how it's worn there. You kind of have it like that. The cables go behind your ears, and if you have it tucked in to whatever thing, or you know, sort of rigged. I think he had it on his arm into this thing. Then, you know, you're pretty set. You're not going to get a lot of cable noise since they're pretty tight. 
it's pretty tight behind your ears like that, you know, with a little bit of play so he can move his head a little bit. But no, it doesn't. These are engineers, and they don't have a lot of transference of, uh, of vibrations up the up the cable. You know. I'm sorry. Uh, he 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 replaced the discs, you know. As he's, he's just kind of running along, you know. It's just kind of, and he also that little bit at the end where, you know, you think he just happened to run past his father, singing, "Hey, Danny." Well, he was smart enough to actually uh, have his father rolling. Uh, he gave him a separate recorder, <laughs> and had him, like he said, when you see the runners coming in, <laughs> push this button and push this button and start going. So he was able to actually sort of catch that. You know, it was a little. A lot of forethinking, but it was kind of a nice little little effect. And also, as he's running past these things, you know, as you get that Doppler shift of the sounds, kind of the frequencies of the sounds, kind of going down as as he's going past them, and the sounds are kind of coming up. It, it was kind of a fun piece, a little bit of a challenge to try to figure out. Yeah, Randy. And they're actually they're pretty good as far as if when you're wearing these and narrating, doing self-narrating, they're they're sort of about perfect for your normal spoken voice. It would be almost like you know it sounds as if you're miking yourself with a handheld, um, but you're getting this nice stereo image, and you're sort of basically your mouth is sort of right between the two mics, and you're getting a nicely placed, uh, you know, uh, placed miking situation for speaking. Yeah, so that's why I love these for going into. Whichever environments I've taken them all over the place. There's a little disco on a little Caribbean island, and you know that, that belongs to Nicaragua, and just sort of recording all the sounds of the disco there, walking through a marketplace in Central America, and all these different places. You know, they look a little strange, but you know, people just think they're just weird headphones. Yeah. That well, wasn't going to work for me, <laughs> Rabbi Jefferson. <laughs> uh, those mics in particular run about four hundred dollars, but but for twenty nine ninety five, if you call today, um, these um, these Radio Shack microphones, you could with a little bit of uh, you know not too much effort, you could rig these up. You know, either clip them to your glasses. You know, maybe you know one little capsule on each one. You just take them out of their clip. Well, separate them out a little bit. I know that uh, Jeff Town, who's who's roaming around here a little bit, a one of the great technical, he's he's taped them sort of just you know using the mics like this, and gotten some wonderful recordings. Just sort of picking up things. They're sort of kind of ear-like, you know, the sound capturing bit. I know he's had them, so he gets in a captured sound like that. You could rig them up so that they're basically pinned to your glasses. You know, you could rig them into a baseball cap, you know, and wear that. You can actually mount them on top of some headphones as well and sort of strap them to some headphones. Um, you know, uh, the, one of the issues with, with these will be um, is wind. You know, and this is why we also went for this configuration, because with this one, wind sounds like wind, <laughs> not like, you know, the bad microphone noise. So that's another, you know, reason why these work really well in this particular configuration. So these are about 400. You can find them at sonicstudios.com.
using them outside or, or just for regular old interviews? Um, usually, the, I don't know, I, I've used them just with the regular windscreen that comes with them. A lot of them have a little built-in screen, and then the foam, um, you know, they'll, they'll have the natural sort of pop grill that's on them, and then this one, the Shure, actually comes with a little extra thing inside there, and also with this. So you're, you're getting pretty good peepop protection there. Um, I don't know, I suppose you could... Mm -hmm. Right. Muppet skin. No, no, no. This is a Zeppelin. <laughs> well, I mean, the mini Zeppelin on this thing here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, you're going to be cutting down on some frequencies there. And the, the, you're start, going to start to lose high frequencies, you know, at that point if you start to. That's right. <laughs> or there's or there's condoms too, which are kind of interesting to use on microphones. Now there's they're no, you laugh, but they're they're very they're great transmitters of sound. Um, we use them in in Howard the Duck. Uh, we use that. <laughs> there was an underwater. Yes, underwater recordings. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Non-lubricated, by the way. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> no, don't use Depends. Use condoms. <laughs> Windscreen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fabric. Yeah. Yeah. Bring it.
With the furry. Mm -hmm. I usually don't think in terms of condenser dynamic, but if I was traveling somewhere and, and, and it was going to be kind of rugged conditions, perhaps I might opt more for a dynamic microphone just because they are more rugged and they are, and, and condenser mics do less well in the wind since the diaphragms are, are, are thinner and dynamic mics are just more rugged, you know, you don't have to, you know, worry about batteries, you know. Mm -hmm. Oh, it skipped. It skipped through this. But we put it on his arm to minimize the shock. You know, we were thinking about a belt loop, and we tried to do a bunch of different things. We had him running up and down the hallway with the mini disc on various parts of his body. Was it going to be on his chest? But, you know, no, that didn't seem to work because there was more sweat and fluid accumulating there. So we ended up with one of these um, sports, uh, neoprene sports armbands. And so he kind of had it going down to one of those and was able to, you know, actually change discs on the, on, on the run. And uh, so, no, but it did skip. There was a number of places that it skipped. Sorry? No. No. No, because the dad is, there's just too many little, the dad's not as steady. I mean, you've got this, you know, little miniature video cassette and this funny little arm that's going to reach it and pull the tape out and, you know, <clears throat> jog at it and, you know, sort of hit it at that head. That it, I think it would be too delicate or something like that. I mean, Minidisc is, I like Minidisc. A lot of people have problems with it because it's not a full, you know, it's not uncompressed. You know, you're, you're starting at a loss already. But um, it's done me pretty well. And I think for a lot of the situations that people are going to be in, um, Minidisc does pretty well. You know, it's near CD quality, so they say. And, and um and you can work with it, and and it can survive a lot of uh, a lot of uh, encoding crunches. I had an MP3, it was a mini disc thing that I had taped for the BBC, and so I taped it on mini disc and fed it through ISDN to the BBC. They put it into their digital editors, which we used Wave. Uh, they mixed that down. You know, and then bounce that out to, I think, to a, I'm not sure whether they were playing it off of a CD or a DAT. So they played it in England. It went back through the satellite system, you know, over the ocean and then back again to the radio station. And it, it arrived in pretty good shape after going through a lot of steps there. That's not always going to happen. Uh, so a lot of the reporters at uh, KQED found out when they were trying to record, I think it was um, record off of a QuickTime movie uh, off, of, off of the web which is already pretty crunched up. And then once you try to encode it again into the A-track type recording that Minidisc uses, the what is it, adaptive transform acoustic coding, there was nothing left but alien, you know, alien communications. Uh, <laughs> no, I haven't talked about hard disk recorders yet.
at the 722. Mm. Maybe X XLRs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's eventually the way things are going, which is solid state, non-moving. A non-moving medium is where it's all headed. Right now, the cost is restrictive on them. And even that will be a good deal given all the feature set that you have, but it's still, for some, it's going to be cost restrictive. You know, but, and again, eventually it's going to get there where, you know, we're going to be talking about this stuff. Of, you know, I paid $2,000 for my pre, and it'll be just like my Macintosh 7100 that I bought, and uh, I can't even remember when, and it cost me $3,500. And now I see them on eBay, or no, not even on eBay, on Craigslist, a local commuter, uh, computer bulletin board. People are giving them away. You know, they're doorstops now, $25. They're great machines. They're wonderful machines, a very solid platform. You know, this 2CI and the 7100, if you, you know, if you want to find yourself a nice working, you know, old version of Pro Tools, you can run it. It'll run slowly compared to what you get today, but it still runs. And mine was running up until the day I, I, I put it away. And so was my little CD burner and all of that. And it was all working perfectly fine and it's sitting in my garage right now with the potential to work perfectly fine, but, you know, my two-gig drive cost me $1,100. You know, and, you know, <laughs> so, you know, you can get what you can afford <laughs> and what's, you know, whatever you have the budget for at the time and get the best thing you can, but uh, know that, uh, you know, you may be kicking yourself anyway, but it, it's it's almost inevitable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, well, there's a lot of little you know, USB devices that you can get, some FireWire devices as well, that you can plug the mini-disc. Uh, well, it all depends on the mini-disc recorder. You know, if you've got some of the little consumer ones, you have no choice but to come out analog, out of the headphone out. You know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not it's not USB. No. Yeah, that's a little, yeah. So um so in a lot of the cases of the consumer level and even the, the some of the prosumer ones, you can only come out analog out of them. You have to step up to something like the Marantz uh, mini disc deck or the HHB mini disc deck in order to get a USB out of the out of the deck, and it's not a data port; it's an audio stream. It's not a data port, so you won't be able to plug it in and just you know pull the files off the mini disc. Well, I mean, theoretically, it should sound better than analog if you're coming out digital, you know. But 
to come out digital, you need a more expensive machine. Yeah, oh yeah, no, many, many, many people are coming using analog. But what I've been using, or what I used to offload some of this sound that I was playing off the, off the computer this time was this little device. It's not great, but it uh, kind of, can kind of do the trick. It's called the iMic. And you can actually use this on PC as well. It is a digital to, uh, analog to digital converter. It plugs into the USB port. And it has a little, you know, USB in and out, mini stereo ins and outs. You can switch it from mic to line. And it does an okay job, an okay job. There's, and it's $35 okay, or $39.95 from griffintechnology.com. If you plug in I mic, little I, big M, little I, little C, I mic, you can find these, and it's you know it does an okay job. You can take steps up from this. There's a company called Ederol, E D I, E D I R O L.